Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Well, I want to finish this series with an attempt to help us feel the weight of why our formation matters. I think it's so important that we really, because it is, it is weighty and it is important for us. If we don't understand why everything we've been talking about for the last few weeks, if we don't understand why it matters, then we might treat it lightly and we'll end up not really doing our part, not really pursuing uh, formation because we'll be like, eh, it's not like I, I kind of get to it when I get, it's kind of like kale, you know, like you know it's good for you, but you just don't really eat it very often unless it's like forced upon you. And sometimes we treat our formation like that. We're like, well, it's, it's not like critical. This is, I'll get to it when I get to it uh, at my convenience. That's what happens when we don't really feel the weight of why our formation matters. And what I really want us to make a connection in this morning is that our spiritual formation is not just about us. It is about us. It is about our healing. It is about our going deeper in relationship with Jesus. It is about us living flourishing lives. It is about us. It's not only about us. In fact, if we turn our attention again to the definition that we have been looking at the last few weeks, we've been defining spiritual uh, formation as a faith-fueled process of being formed in the image of Christ, and this is the important part for today, for the sake of others. It is not just about us. And I had a conversation a couple of days ago that made this so painfully clear for me again. One of my favorite things about, I guess, my life in general, but my job in particular, is that on an almost daily basis, I get to participate in what I think of as sacred conversations, where I get to sit with someone and move beyond the surface things that we so often talk about, which are fine and good to talk about, what we're binging on Netflix right now, the weather, maybe the more superficial aspects of our lives. It's important and it's a gift every time we get to move beyond that and to begin to talk about what God's really doing inside of us. And I think of those as sacred conversations. And I had uh, a number of those this week, but one really rises to the surface for me. Because I was sitting from a friend, with a friend, and I was listening to them talk about really the state of their own soul. And I listened as he shared uh, very openly and, and uh, vulnerably about what his life to this point has consisted of and how it has felt to him. And so we went all the way back to the beginning and he sat and was obviously very emotional because there were very heavy things that were being discussed and said that he, he grew up with parents that he was pretty certain did not like him, which might be something that some of us can relate to. 
And it, and it wasn't like just this vague sort of like, oh, I'm just kind of insecure. Like there's, there's like some concrete evidence that they just really did not like him. And then he went on in the midst of this overwhelming emotion and started to describe relationship after relationship after relationship that they've had in their lives that has reinforced this same experience that he had in childhood. This experience of having, really feeling like even the, the people that, that he might think of as friends just doesn't really have a sense that they like him. What they like, and this is an important distinction, and I think a lot of us can probably relate to this. What he feels is he has people in his life that have always really liked what he can do for them. What he brings to the relationship that benefits them. So imagine, and this won't be hard for some of us because this is many of our experiences. Maybe you grew up in a home with parents that you really have a sense or a parent that you felt like they just do not like me. And then you have relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship that feels the same way. These people like what I can do for them and maybe even exploit that and take advantage of what I can do for them, but these people don't really like me. You have that experience enough times and it forms this deep script in your soul that says that you are not a value. What's a value is what you can do. And that is anti-gospel and it is devastating to the human psyche and it stunts relationship with God. And so at this point in our conversation, my friend was very emotional. You ever have one of those cries that you like can't talk through no matter how hard you try? It's not a good feeling. So he quieted himself, composed his emotions to the point where he could talk again, and then said the sentence to me that was the most devastating. He said, and I don't think God likes me. And so you might be sitting here wondering, what on earth does this very depressing story have to do with my spiritual formation? How does this connect to what we have been talking about for the last few weeks? And, and, and here's, here's how it connects. That story is an example of something we're going to see Jesus talk about in the scriptures this morning, but it's, it's an it teaches us an important lesson that I think that we are often prone to miss. And the lesson is what I'm going to state as our big idea this morning. I want you to really, really listen to this. I've written a lot of sentences in my life. I think this might be, it's certainly one of, if not the most weighty sentence I've ever felt that I've written. And so our big idea this morning is this. I inform what others feel from God. I inform what other people feel from God. Now notice, not just what they feel about God, what they actually feel from him. And we might be prone to like push back on that and go, no, 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 no. What, 
If, if, if someone doesn't feel rightly from God, then it's an issue of theology. They need to have better theology. They need to spend more time in the scriptures. But it's very interesting the way that God has comprised our brains. This is gonna be a gross oversimplification because I'm a two-time college dropout, but, but I am certain of this, okay? Well, I, like they say, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And so my first dropout didn't take, and I tried again. This one stuck. But think about the way that God has made our brains. <clears throat> what theology does, or learning, or study, or learning the right theological facts that the Bible teaches about God, all of that stuff forms in the left side of your brain. It's the left side of the brain that, that is the, the linear, logical, rational, thinking, if you will, aspect of the brain. And the right side is where the emotional component is formed. And, and more than anything else, far more than any systematic theology that you will ever read, the biggest thing that shapes the way that we integrate and process the facts about who God is and about what he, what he says, the biggest thing that shapes that is the, emo, the, the relational experiences that we have in our lives. And so at birth, we start to, to form these feelings. And it starts with our primary caregivers, our, our parents, or maybe you had a different primary caregiver, but that's where it starts, is in, in that relationship. And it is inevitable that as we all sit here and we all have varying degrees of like some pretty spiritual dysfunction in the way that we feel God feels toward us, I can guarantee you, I've been doing this long enough to know that this is a very safe assumption. You have some jacked up imagery in your mind about God and you got it from your mom and dad. And I'm not criticizing your mom and dad. I'm not criticizing my mom and dad. It's inevitable. My kids are going to grow up and they're going to have some dysfunctional imagery and feelings regarding who God is and what he's like because of me. And then as we continue to pursue an ever-expanding community of relationships as we get older, all of those relationships inform the way that we feel about God's feelings and God's thoughts and God's value of us. It's inevitable that that happens. And, and what I would propose to you this morning is that that's not a mistake, it's not an accident, that it is actually God's intent we were created in the image of God. If you think about the Genesis story, God says, let us create mankind in our image. So God created us in, him, in his image and he created us to be his image in this world. Albeit in it, we do it in horribly imperfectly, but there is a sense in which that is part of what we do. I said this last week, but we, if, if we are image bearers of God, then to some degree we carry the image of the divine. And we display that to one another. And we are either displaying to one another something about God that is true or something about God that is false. And so it's, that is the reason that our formation matters. Because we inform what other people feel about God. If that does not sober you, I can't help. <laughs> that is one of the most sobering realities I've ever considered in my life. And it's why it's so critical that we embrace this final invitation from Jesus to embrace love. 
and not some kind of like hippie, dippy, baseless, like the way that love is so frequently talked about in our culture, but the way that God himself has defined and displayed love to us, we embrace love for God and love for one another. And so this morning, the, the place that I want to look at is a story with Jesus in Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible this morning or an app that you're reading on, why don't you go ahead and get to Mark chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me just catch you up on kind of what's going on here and set the stage. In Mark chapter 11, so just before what we're going to read, specifically beginning in verse 27, all the way through chapter 1244, Jesus is in the midst of uh, some conflict, which was common in his life, with the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the governing board of Jewish life uh, in his day. And so at this moment, as we drop in, it's, it's one of those like tensions are running high, emotions are running a little hot. Uh, these groups of men are trying to, to trip Jesus up, to trick Jesus into saying something that they could hold over his head. The problem is he was like super quick on his feet and it never worked for them. And so there's some debate about exactly the different groups that made up the Sanhedrin. Um, but what we know for sure from this story, it was, it was at least made up of these three different groups. The first story, uh, if we were to back up to Mark 11, involves Jesus' dispute with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were very highly committed to obedience to the Torah. And so they spent their whole lives being so careful that they did not break a single one of the 613 commands in the Old Testament. And in fact, just out of fear that they might accidentally violate one of those, they came up with like their own rules because 613 wasn't enough to sort of safeguard themselves from ever even getting close to these other rules. So the Pharisees was one. The Sadducees were another one. They were also really committed to the scriptures, but they were only committed to the Torah. They weren't going to put anything extra on there. They were very, very conservative about we're only going to obey and to believe and to read the Torah. Now, the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a political one. The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the integration of faith and politics. I lean more that way. The Sadducees, however, were very content to be politically involved. And then finally, we have the scribes that we're going to see uh, in our story this morning. Now, the scribes held a variety of different vocations. They would, um, they would copy manuscripts. They would serve as political advisors. They oftentimes were viewed as sage-like characters in their culture. And so we, what, what, what's different about the story that we're going to look at with, this, with a particular scribe this morning in Mark chapter 12 is that unlike this group of Pharisees and group of Sadducees that had come to try to trip Jesus up, he appears to come genuinely curious. So he comes with an open, non-combative posture, genuinely wanting to know what Jesus has to say to a very specific question. So that brings us to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28. Uh, it starts like this. It says, one of the scribes approached and when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now, this would have been a very common scenario in their culture. The scribes, one of their chief concerns was proper interpretation of the Torah and so it was very common for a scribe in that situation to ask a respected teacher to summarize the Torah for them. 
to, to ask the question that he asked. Now, the problem is the way that we translate from Greek to English, the, the real essence of the question that's being asked gets a little lost because it sounds like when this scribe says, hey, which one of the commandments is most important? It sounds to us like he's asking Jesus to like force rank these 613 commandments which is actually something that rabbis in the first century did. They had what they referred to as heavy commandments and they had lighter commandments. And the heavy ones were much more urgent. Like we don't, we don't, like there's no, there's no gray. We're not going to play fast and loose. Like these are essential to life. And then the lighter ones they viewed as less mission critical. But Jesus is not being asked to force rank these various commandments, like which one of them do you think is, what he's really being asked is, is which, which of all of those commands gets at the heart of all of them? When you consider Jesus, these 613 commands in the Old Testament, which one contains the essence of them all? That's the question that's brought, which is a big question, right? Like if I were to sit with you over coffee and be like, what's the essence of the Bible? You'd probably be like, whoa, a, a lot of things? And that's the question that's brought to Jesus. And now let's look at his answer, verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Here's what has always struck me, about, struck me as fascinating about this interaction. Notice, and this happens every time, Jesus has asked this question a couple of different times in the Gospels. And every single time, the same thing happens. Someone comes to him, and they are asking him for one command. And Jesus refuses to answer the question with one command, he always answers with two. And we have to pay attention to that because he is unifying and integrating these two commands in the Old Testament into one. And so the first place that he draws from is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was also a prayer the Jewish people referred to as the Shema. And it was a prayer that, they would, that the devout Jews would recite both in the morning and in the evening every single day. And so Jesus holds up the Shema, which no one would have been probably very surprised by. But then he continues to answer, quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, saying, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now in the Jewish mindset, the neighbor was fellow Jews. But we know from the rest of Jesus' teaching, he was constantly going to war on that mentality. And he was constantly trying to help people understand, no, your neighbor is literally everyone. It's Jews and Gentiles. It's not just Jewish people. It's not just the people who think like you, look like you, believe and behave like you. It's everyone. And so when Jesus is asked, what is the most important Command, what, what, what commandment has the essence of the entirety of all commandments in the Old Testament? Jesus says love for God and love for people. And so his point is to say that true love for God will produce love for others and that love of others is primarily an expression of love for God. But we have to see 
These two things unified as one. They are necessarily attached to one another. Because how, like, I can't be the only person that's ever met someone, especially if you've been in the church for any amount of time, I can't be the only person who's ever met someone that knows so much about God, so much Bible, and they suck as a person. Just me? Everybody you've ever met that knows a bunch of Bible is just really fun to be around? That's a problem. And it teaches us that you can know an immense amount of information about God and not actually love him. Because Jesus says, if we really love God, we will necessarily love people. It is impossible to be in deep, genuine, growing communion with God and to not have our hearts transformed toward people. This is what is so broken about so much of the rhetoric within modern Christianity that we hear. All of this obsession with being right and so little love. God's not pumped about that. He's far less pumped about our rightness than we are. He's chiefly concerned with the way that it expresses itself in our lives. Namely, that it's meant to express itself in love for God and love for one another. So the scribe is very impressed by this answer. And look how he responds in verse 32. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. I always love that part because this poor scribe, he has no idea who Jesus actually is. But I love the almost like the, the like head tap that he gives Jesus like, you know what? That was, a, that was a really good answer. He's like, yeah, I, I like created all of this and you. So of course my answer is clear. But this, this scribe has no idea. But he says, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was a huge statement for him to make in that culture. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I love this. And no one dared to question him any longer. They're like, we are done with this. He is too good at this. So here's, here's, here's what we, we learn here from this scribe and his summation and his approval of what Jesus says. We learn again that love is preeminent, even over the most sacred activities in our lives. For them, it was burnt offerings and sacrifices, which again, to make this statement, to say that love for God and love for people is so much more important than these sacred activities in that like everything revolved for them around these activities. So for him to say that was a, like people would have sat up and taken notice of that. And we should sit up and take notice of that. Even our sacred activities like worship, like giving, when we sit with God, they are never meant to be anything other than an expression of our love for God. They are not meant for earning they are not meant for us to prop ourselves up as righteous. They are a means of expressing this ever-growing love that we have for God and for people. And apart from love, apart from love for God 
and apart from love for people, those activities are meaningless. If the way you read the scriptures does not inform the way that you love people, you might as well stop reading the Bible. Because what that's an amen for even the baby knows. <laughs> but genuinely, you can read the Bible in the wrong way. In a way that does not impact us the way that Jesus intends. And it becomes a weapon that is used to hurt and to destroy people. And that is never what God intended. And so as we think about this interaction and this story, I have two implications that keep coming to the surface for me. The first one is this, love for God and others is the focus of my formation. Love for God and love for others is the focus of my formation. When you think about your formation, I'm curious, like what is, would you echo that? If I were to say, hey, what, what is the focus of your, like what, what is it that you're trying to become as you pursue, pursue a forming relationship with Jesus? If one of the first things out of our mouth is not love, then we've missed it. Because love is the focus of our formation. Think about it. If we are being formed in the image of Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect expression of love, which he is. The Bible tells us that God is love, that he is the definition and description of what true love is. So Jesus is the perfect expression of love. If we are being formed in his image, then we are being formed first and foremost in love and for love. And so what that means is, I think that we should read 1 Corinthians 13, that famous, famous, beautiful chapter from the Apostle Paul on love, we should read 1 Corinthians 13 like a blueprint for our formation. We all know what a blueprint is, right? It's a two-dimensional drawing that an architect does in order to paint the picture, if you will, for what something that they want constructed is going to look like and how it should be constructed. And I would argue we should read 1 Corinthians 13 as the blueprint for our formation. That is what... Jesus is trying to form in us because this is who he is and what he's like. And so I'm not going to read all of 1 Corinthians 13 to us this morning, but I do want to read just a couple of verses here. And I want you to understand as you listen to these words that this is what Jesus wants your life to look like. This is what he wants our responses to look like, our relationships to look like. This is what he wants from us and for us. And so I want to invite you to just close your eyes for a second. And I want you to listen deeply with one ear on what's being read over you and the other listening for the Holy Spirit to maybe put his finger on a point of unlikeness in your life. Meaning, as you listen to this description of love, let's invite the Holy Spirit to draw our attention to a place where one of these descriptors or multiple of them is not accurate in our life. Listen to these words. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable. And love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Now, as you hold those words in your heart and your mind, you can look up here. Hopefully, I mean, I, I, never, I never read through that description and walk away going, I'm crushing it. There's always something that I'm like, whew, I am struggling with this. Here's what I want you to know. Don't, don't, don't resist that. Don't avoid that. Don't turn away from that. That is exactly where the Spirit of God wants to work in you. It's what we talked about last week. He wants to focus attention on these points of unlikeness in our lives. Love for God and others is the focus of our formation. But that's not all. If that's true, then, then make a note of this. Relationship is the furnace in which I'm refined. Relationship is the furnace in which I'm refined. This is what is broken about the just me and Jesus mentality. No biblical community, no attachment to a local church, no relationship with other followers of Jesus who more and more actually know me. It's just me and Jesus is all I need. Well, that doesn't work. The Bible's a communal book written to communities of faith and can only be fully applied in the context of community. The Bible has no category for an isolated Lone Ranger Christian. It's not a thing. And one of the reasons that that's true and important for us to embrace is that our relationships with one another, Jesus means to be the very furnace in which we're refined. Have you noticed how nothing exposes our unlikeness to Christ like relationship? Nothing. A great example of this for me was, was like as my life continued to change in my early 20s, I, I would have thought like, I'm a, I'm a pretty like selfless person. Well, then I got married and began to share a home with another human and realized like, oh yeah, well, I felt selfless because my life was really only about me. And then we had kids and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I might be a monster based on what this experience is bringing out of me. Nothing exposes our unlikeness to Christ like the relationships that we have. And again, that is by design. I have noticed I am never irritated when I'm alone. When I'm by myself, like, I don't, I don't feel very irritated right now. I'm almost always irritated in the presence of other people. Like I, this, this week, I had lunch with Denise and Nolan Newborn. We went to Vessel Kitchen over in uh, Midvale. And I walked in, I was having a good day. I didn't come in like hot, right? I've come into some lunches with them when I was running hot and they could attest to that. This was another, I was having a great day. I walk into lunch and if you've never been to Vessel, it works like every other restaurant of its kind, which is 
all the food is like in an orderly fashion and you pick what you want and move your way down and pay for it at the end, right? Chipotle, they're all like that, not confusing. I walk in, there are two of the tallest, most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life, which that annoyed me too. How can you be so attractive? So there's this like six foot six guy, he was so handsome. And this beautiful woman that was, I think they were like work friends or whatever, and they're standing there in the middle of this line of food, just trying to figure out how it works. And I wanted to push them into traffic. It didn't even, it, listen, here, it didn't affect me because I just had to walk right by them, go to the end and order my food. I wasn't even like, can you please hurry? It had nothing to do with me. And I couldn't, I think I even ordered my food wrong because I was just like, can you, how can you not know how this works? I sit down with, with, with uh, Denise and I'm like, I, I can't stand people. She's like, well, your, your job must be a real problem for you. And I was like, yeah, it is all the time. And listen, we, we laugh about that because I'm a psycho. But the truth is, that is not loving. And I don't even have a relationship with those people. But people in general have a way of exposing our unlikeness to Christ. And when that happens, because it's going to happen, we really only have a couple of options. Our first option is we can withdraw. When we're in a relationship that begins to squeeze us, and it becomes uncomfortable or challenging, and our unlike Christness begins to expose itself, oftentimes what we do is we withdraw. And so relationships get a little too real for us, and then we move on to another church. This is, I mean, this is one reason why divorce is as high as it is. Rather than allow that relationship, not, not all, please do not import that as a statement about all divorce by any means, but in some cases, the reality is it's just been more difficult than what we anticipated because we let like stupid things like Instagram and rom-coms tell us what marriage is going to be like. And so we go in with improper expectations and rather allow that to be a refining furnace in our lives, we just bounce and go on to the next thing. We do that in all kinds of relationships and that is an option. When it gets hard, when it begins to expose our areas of unlikeness to Christ, we can ju just withdraw. Or we can acknowledge it. We can acknowledge that, yeah, this is bringing something out of me that is not loving. And as we talked about last week, we can agree with Christ and invite him and open ourselves to his work in us and we can adjust accordingly. But those are really our options. We can withdraw or we can acknowledge it, agree with Christ and make the adjustments that we need to make. So as we come to the end of this series, which I've really, really enjoyed and has been helpful for me, there's two things I want you to know that are true. The first is, we are formed by Christ for our own healing. It is about you. We all bear significant wounds in our life that obscure us from being who we truly are in the image of God. And your formation is about Jesus healing you in a way that leads you to a life of flourishing and thriving and health. Not ease and not comfort, but, but health 
and wholeness nonetheless. And we are formed for the healing of others. It's not just about you. And we have to embrace this. We will inform what other people feel from God. Think about that for a second. And so our formation is for the healing of others too. So we don't inflict further wound. So that we don't put further confusion into the hearts and minds of people regarding who God is and how he feels towards them. And so this is all, in many ways, an invitation to be an agent of healing. We bear the name of Christ. And so it is so critical that we image him well. And there has to be so many times that God sits back and looks at the people who claim his name going, I need a new PR agent. This ain't going great for me. It's so critical that we image him well. And that doesn't mean faking it. That means allowing him to do the forming work that he wants to do specifically when we find ourselves in the desert. And so I want to invite you with me to be a people that strive to display love well. And when we fail, because we will, we apologize. Meaning we take, we admit it, we take ownership, and we make adjustment where necessary. The biggest damage that we do to one another is not when we fail to love well. Because that's going to happen. Like, I, I was working through this, praying through this all week, going like, and I couldn't stop thinking about my children because I feel the weight of, I image God to them. Their mom images God to them in a unique manner. And I think we all feel the weight of like, well, we're not good gods. And they're, they're going to have their own things to work through with him. So I feel the weight of that. But but what's the most damaging in formation is not even the mistake that's made, it's the, the mistake that is not acknowledged, owned, and apologized for. So when we hurt one another, we acknowledge and say, I understand that I, I did not love you well. And I'm very sorry. And I'd ask that you forgive me. And I'm going to do my best not to do that again. And I'm going to continue to press in to the spirit of God and open myself because I need change in that area. It's not complicated. It's just super hard. We are going to inform what other people feel from God. So will we love well? Let me pray for us and then we'll do some Q&A. So if you have some questions, you can go ahead and get those texted in. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you, first and foremost, that you love perfectly. You love us well. So much beyond what we deserve. You have just chosen to set your love upon us. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that even right now that we could some degree feel the reality of that. 
You displayed your love. You, you, we, we remembered in communion this morning, you died so that we could be healed, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be in relationship with you again. There is nothing that you have done that should cause us to question your love, your acceptance, your desire, your joy over us. But Lord, so much in this life does. And so I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would continue this work of integrating what we understand to be true rationally and what we feel to be true emotionally. And I pray, God, that you would use each of us in that process of integration, that we would love one another well, that we would love you above all else, and that in our loving relationship with you, as we open ourselves to what you want to say, what you want to reveal, what you want to expose, what you want to do, that you would change us from the inside out and we would become more and more loving people. People who are patient and kind, who are not irritable, who do not live for themselves, but we live for you and for one another. Help us love well. Help us to take ownership to apologize, to amend when we don't. Lord, I pray that we would be a loving community. But only you can build that in us. And so we ask that you would. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.